I started thinking about the Bitterroot Valley years ago when I arrived here um, as a student at UM. And one of my first drives down, uh, I was surprised with friends of mine were saying yesterday, as we were all at the Daily Mansion, that they had never been there before. And I thought, oh my goodness. You know, I had my first car. I was in grad school. I was in Montana, 2,500 miles away from my mother. It was great. <laughs> and I thought, where am I going to drive? And my first drive in my first new car that I ever owned was down the Bitterroot Valley to look at the Daly Mansion and kind of explore a little bit down here. And then I came back um, when I was working in the preservation office as National Register Coordinator. Uh, we had a meeting down here, and a board member came up to me and said, you know, you really should do something about Frank Floyd Wright in the Bitterroot. And I had kind of thought about it, and I thought, oh yeah, you know, I wonder what's still standing around here. Because I had heard of the Bitterroot Inn, which was in Stevensville, uh, which was constructed around 1905, 1906, that had burned down to the ground by 1925. Um, and so I thought, Frank Lloyd Wright in the Bitterroot is gone. But in fact, there are two buildings still standing, designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, at um, Como Orchards, also known as University Heights outside of Darby. And the story of how he ended up there uh, was really interesting. So we decided that we wanted to list that property in the National Register of Historic Places. My good friend Mary Greenfield and I worked on that nomination together, and I want to acknowledge her. She did a lot of the research and a lot of the writing for this project, so I called her up and said, you know, I'm just going to be reading the nomination. I hope you don't mind that I'm completely plagiarizing your work. And she said, you're not plagiarizing because I give you permission. So when I say these words, a lot of them are Mary's words, and I just wanted to acknowledge that. <laughs> um, but I love this place. It is actually privately owned, so you can't just go around and squirrel around in Frank Lloyd Wright buildings. Um, but it is at a ranch. Um, a guest ranch, so you can arrange to stay there if you would like to. Um, but it all starts a little earlier than that, and we'll talk about the brief flowering of the University Heights Committee, or I'm sorry, community, which was a planned summer residential colony near Darby, and it grew out of multiple overlapping strains of optimism. <coughs> Among these were Bitterroot Valley's enthusiasm for commercial apple growing, the economic confidence engendered by railroad building, and social aspirations embedded in high-end Western tourism, and the riches promised by land speculation. Sounds a lot familiar. Things, some things never change, right? <laughs> These were the economic imperatives behind University Heights. Politically, socially, and aesthetically, the district was a product of a progressive era in experiments in communal living, growing intellectual interest in a more equitable and just social arrangement, and the hope that these might be made possible by a fresh American approach to art, architecture, and community planning. Let's see. So to begin with, we have a river, right? The Bitterroot River runs for 100 miles. To the west, the ragged granite peaks of the Bitterroot Mountains rise to heights above 10,000 feet. The gentler sapphire mountain range borders the valley to the east. And the valley varies in width from 1 to 20 miles. An average elevation of the valley floor is about 3,500 feet. But because it's so varied and there's so many little canyons and um, everything, there's, there's numerous microclimates. So you look at the valley and it's not just one uh, climate. There's lots of depending on elevation and whether or not you're sheltered by a mountain or, a, or another uh, geographic feature. 
um, that there's also a wide range of soil types. So there's not going to be the ability to plant one kind of apple from Florence all the way down to Derby and expect that all the trees would thrive equally. St. Mary's Mission. Hopefully all you guys are going to go over to St. Mary's tomorrow for the anniversary. It's just an amazing place. Um, but Father uh, DeSmet established St. Mary's Mission in what would become Stevensville, of course, in 1841. But he wasn't initially impressed by the valley's natural fertility. But the priest foresaw that its possibilities uh, were endless if it were irrigated. And one of the priests there also wrote, irrigation, either by natural or artificial means, is absolutely necessary for the cultivation of the soil. This difficulty, however, if the country should ever become thickly settled, can be easily obviated as the whole region is well supplied by numerous streams and rivulets. In 1850, the Jesuits decided to abandon the mission, selling it to Indian trader and former army major John Owen. Owen encouraged white settlement while discouraging native agriculture, and even on the former mission lands. Clearly envisioning a prosperous future in the valley, he imported high-quality seed and farming equipment and built a grist mill. But in 1866, Father Ravalli returned, and one of the Jesuits who settled St. Mary's Mission in the 1840s, and he was a big critic of John Owen, um, especially his stewardship of the Salish welfare, and he returned to the valley and opened the mission again. In 1869, Ravalli planted a few apple trees. It was, one of the, it was a portent of the apple boom that would eventually rock the area, and one of those trees still stands. So if you go to um, St. Mary's, if you were just there yesterday, or I took a better picture of it, actually, but I do love this picture. This tree stands between Father Ravalli's house, and that's um, Chief Victor's house back here behind it. There are several other apple trees on the grounds, but they were planted later. This is original from Father Ravalli's tenure. It is a crab apple tree, so, oh my God, of all the apples in the world, you had to choose a crab apple. No, it tastes very good. <clears throat> the Bitter Valley in the 1890s was the site of grand dreams, land schemes, denuded forests, unsustainable development, and conspicuous cons consumption on a regal scale. The Anaconda Mining Company, uh, magnet Marcus Daly, who we all learned about a lot last night, visited the Bitterroot as early as the 1860s, and he appreciated the valley on several levels. The views were beautiful, the pastures promising, and the timber was plentiful. And this last was his primary consideration. Mines were voracious consumers of timber. The transportation costs discouraged intensive timber cutting until the arrival of the railroad line, though, until 1887. And Daly's Bitterroot Development Company opened in 1889, just a couple years later. The development company built a dam on the Bitterroot River in 1890, and Daly's employees platted the town of Hamilton the same year. By 1892, the new lumber mill at Hamilton produced up to 35 million board feet of timber a year. That's a lot of logs. Unfortunately, um, as we'll find out, clear cutting and a personal fiefdom don't foster stable growth. And just two years later, in 1894, the government land office accused the Bitterroot Development Company of illegally cutting public timber, uh, which they probably almost certainly were in fact doing. Although the Anaconda company, Mining Company purchased the Bitterroot Development Company and tried to get it under its political wing and protect it from all kinds of uh, uh, investigations, 
Um, the fact of the matter is, is that they cut too fast and they denuded the trees, denuded the mountains, and you know, there was nothing left to cut. And so, boom and bust economy, they move on. In 1898, the Division of Forestry established the Bitterroot National Forest, and that was pretty much the end of the, tim the major timber operations down here uh, in Hamilton. In 1898, or I'm sorry, in 1900, of course, then Mr. Daly dies of Bright's disease. That seemed common. And um, Hamilton's population fell by nearly a third in the first years of the 20th century. Daly had, however, left the valley with one promising legacy. He had supported and encouraged irrigation. And the next phase of Bitterroot development would require the commitment of a great deal of capital. It was likely helpful to promoters and speculators to be able to invade, invoke his name, too. You know, Daly liked it, so you should come and see it, too. There were successful apple orchards in the valley before intensive irrigation. Two were located approximately 30 to 40 miles north of Hamilton. Thomas Harris planted 100 trees near Three Mile Creek in 1866, and Amos Buck planted his apple orchard near Florence shortly thereafter. Brothers Dudley and Edward Bass put in a commercial orchard as early as 1870, and they had over 500 trees under cultivation by 1890. It's important again to emphasize that the Bitterroot Valley has a wide range of elevation, soil compositions, and microclimates, and these early orchards were those that were naturally suited to apple growing, so they didn't need a big irrigation system in order to support their, their enterprise. Local farmers finished the valley's first major irrigation project, though, in 1872. It's called the Independent Ditch. Thirteen years later, the Corvallis Canal and Water Company built the Supply Ditch in 1885. Daly also invested in irrigation and his considerable estate on the east side of the river, which is why it's just so magnificently landscaped. It's such a great place. So as I said, the railroad arrived in 1887, and it connected the valley to these national agricultural markets. The valley's population, growing enthusiasm for orchards and irrigation did not coalesce, though, until the end of the century when the Western Montana Fruit Growers Association hosted the first Pacific Northwest Fruit Fair in 1894, the same year the Republican ditch was uh, enlarged. Also in 1894, the Valley Club, a gathering of area businessmen and developers, including Daly, discussed a canal between Willow and Three Mile Creeks, but not to grow apples, but to grow wheat. But Daly stepped in and he said, no, we'll never get the cost back of the building the ditch if we just grow wheat. Maybe we should invest in some fruit orchards. So he was an early proponent of it. By the late 1890s, there was a valley resident named Samuel Dinsmore, and he was taking charge of kind of gaining influence as much or more than Daly had towards the end of his life. And really, Dinsmore was a huge bitter valley booster. In 1895, he helped found the bitter root Orchard Company, which soon counted over 33,000 apple trees. The Dinsmore Irrigation Company, founded in 1900, proposed to build the Big Ditch, linking Lake Como to Bitterroot's West Fork. We've heard of the Big Ditch, right? It's an integral part of this story, this Big Ditch. Ambitious and expensive, the projected cost of the Big Ditch alone was $1.5 million. Dinsmore tried and failed to raise the money from Bitterroot residents. Then he tried and failed to secure some federal money. Despite these setbacks, the apple business just kept booming. 
Between 1903 and 1905, output and profits doubled from 64,000 boxes at $43,000 um, up to 116,000 boxes at over $81,000. Hardened by these figures, Dinsmore is attempted to interest outside investors in the venture. So couldn't get the money here, so they're going to look east and see if they can't get some money some other ways. There was also eventually plans for a second canal via diversion from Tincup Creek, a tributary of Tincup Lake to the south and west of the Idaho border. The Tincup Ditch would irrigate western benchlands cleared by Daly's Lumber Mill and a large tract called Como Orchards. Once it became clear that the direct approaches would not attract sufficient investment, Dinsmore and his associates began to consider a more creative scheme to get um, the valley developed the way they wanted to and to get some cash flowing into their pockets. The unusual outlines of the University Heights project are attributable to the ingenuity and initiative of the ditches promoters and the dire need of the project speculators. Okay. I just wanted to kind of orient us a little bit. This is a picture actually of Tin Cup Ditch. But this is um, a map showing the different ditches and areas along the way. So this is west, we're up here in the mountains. Here's Tin Cup Ditch. And there's a diversion that comes off and this ditch follows all the way up here and the purple parts are irrigated by Tin Cup Ditch. And it comes up and when you see this little bump out up here, this little black square, that's where the University Heights neighborhood uh, would be platted. As I indicated, the Big Ditch proved more difficult and costly than expected, and in late 1907, the Anaconda Mining Company sued the irrigation company for nearly $30,000 in unpaid grocery, coal, and lumber bills. Delinquent in its property taxes and in a receivership by December, our friend, um, Mr. Moody. Now, Mr. Moody, William I. Moody was a Chicago businessman, and he visited the Bitterroot in 1905. Mr. Dinsborn wanted him to come in, and by the fall of 1905, he's like, I'm in. I am all about the Bitterroot Valley. I'm going to promote it in my, to all my friends in Chicago. And he was engaged full-time in this endeavor. Um, the Dinsmore's Irrigation Company changed its name to the Bitterroot Valley Irrigation Company in 1906, and Moody ran the company's Chicago headquarters. So Dinsmore and Moody began buying land and laying out the canal and enticing other urban capitalists to invest in the project. They're going into debt. They're in receivership. Moody's about to jump ship. But after some tense negotiations, Moody um, secured favorable terms in 1908, and construction on the ditches continued. They turned water from Lake Como into the Big Ditch in May of 1909. Now, here's something interesting. The company had paid $250 to $15 an acre for land all along the ditch. Um, after they completed the ditch, they resold that undeveloped land for up to $400 an acre. The Big Ditch was not Moody and Dinsmore's only venture, though. In 1906, they got this Tin Cup Ditch um, going to divert water for another kind of land scheme. The creek was two miles south of what would become University Heights, and it allowed for the development of that orchard land. They explained to investors that for $500 an acre, they would plant and cultivate an orchard for five years. So the, the development company would build this orchard, just buy in, for 500 bucks an acre. 
And after five years, come on out and you'll see this supposedly self-sustaining fruit trees that will just give you their bounty over, and over the years. If an investor lacked cash, he or she could pay $646 an acre over a 10-year period. They also divided some sections into smaller plots and contemplating platting a few more promising townships. The Bitterroot Valley promotional campaign had just begun. <coughs> this orients you a little bit more too. Um, here's the actual plat for the University Heights township that was, that's in the Valley County Courthouse. Um, I'm sorry, it's so fuzzy. Um, and we are, Darby's here. I could use the pointy thing, but I, I'm not. Um, and to go north of Bar Darby, um, Bunkhouse Road, have you ever driven along Bunkhouse Road? You go all along there and on the left, and you can see University Heights up in there. The south of here. In April of 1908, a an article in the Western News, which was the Stevensville newspaper, mentioned a new subdivision to be platted in the Como Orchards area. It was titled, A Summer Retreat for Noted Savants, Members of University Faculties, Famous Authors, and Other Noted Men of the Effete East Have Clubhouse Near Lake Como. The article credited F.D. Nichols with the plan which in practice would become a fascinating early experiment in communal living influenced by new progressive social and political and aesthetic ideas. So they bring in F.D. Nichols. Moody, he's a pretty savvy businessman, right? Moody goes back to the University of Chicago and he's like, I need a pitch man. And he went basically to the Cal Ripken of his day or Peyton Manning. Fair, just handsome wonderful athlete. He was lettered in football and basketball and baseball and he was man about town and they're like, this is the face of University Heights. If he goes there, the masses will follow because he is so good looking and so charming <laughs> and we will want to follow him anywhere and people will pay money to be in his presence, right? So things never change. You still get this, the fancy sports guy to tell you what to buy and where to live. Um, so F.D. Nichols is, is now the face of the community, but Moody's still working there in the background. I love his name is Moody because I always feel like he's a little sneaky. Moody recruited this well-connected Nichols, who had been an admired eight-letter man, a man about campus in the University of Chicago. Professor Robert Morse Lovett, who became prominently associated with the University Heights, recalled that Fred Nichols was the best athlete we had, halfback on the football 11, pitcher on the baseball team. I admired his prowess. When he returned to the university years later with a plan of settling a group of professors on an estate in the Bitterroot Valley, the prospect was quite pleasing. Moody and Nichols developed a three-pronged sales plan for the Bitterroot, financial, social, and aesthetic. The first approach concentrated on apples, particularly Macintosh apples. The company would handle the orchard planting and management. An investor could relax, enjoy the scenery, and let the money roll in. The apple, the king of fruits, was a certain winner, as it was used in more ways than any other food, according to their promotional brochures. The allegedly worm-resistant Macintosh was, was said to be perfect for growing in the bitterroot, and the irrigation company advertised it as the only apple that could be fearlessly eaten in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> 
Moody and Nichols pitched the fruit hard to Chicagoans. In the fall of 1907, he displayed a carload of bitterroot bounty on the corner office across from the Chicago Post Office and hoped for an audience of up to 200,000 passersby per day. In 1909, the Chicago Tribune printed a long loose list of testimonials to Samuel Dinsmore under the heading, The King of Apples, the Macintosh Red, brings fortunes in its wake, sending land values leaping upward. $100 reward for a worm. A few years later, at a Chicago land show day, each visitor in the Coliseum received a glass of bitterroot apple cider. Intellectuals were not immune to the economic optimism of the moment, and political progressives did not necessarily see a contradicting in doing good while doing well. An investor in University Heights could buy a portion of land in a cabin that came with a share of common orchard profits, or just buy, the, buy into the orchard and stay at the clubhouse. University Heights promised to a steady return with little labor and a delicious recreational side benefit. Lovett wrote frankly, Lovett is our professor at university who is in love with Mr. Nichols, the athlete guy. Um, he wrote, outside my university, my chief concern in those years was just to get rich. There were more genteel social considerations as well. The promoters sought to appeal to class aspirations of the faculty members and their spouses through advertising materials and newspaper articles that told them that they were noted savants or a desirable class of investors. Nichols wrote that the Como Orchard purchasers were fully one half, either university men and women, or else people who stand well socially, intellectually, and financially in their communities. Nichols also couched the ideas, areas outdoor activities in terms that directly appealed to progressive era, the progressive era's elevation of physical culture. For example, he spe specifically played on fears of the deleterious effects of the effete East with its subtext of urban living as a cause of the national decline and or creeping homosexuality. The valorization of outdoor life was in keeping with the common progressive era equation of physical and moral fitness. From Theodore Roosevelt's famous essay lauding the strenuous life um, to the creation of summer er camps for urban youth. There was also Frederick Jackson Turner had just written his uh, at famous essay on the closing of the American frontier, you know, and, and that was in Chicago, and so these Chicago professors all knew about the disappearing frontier of the West and they wanted to be part of it. The desire for reinvigoration through semi-pioneer living, as generally discussed as a male phenomenon, also appealed to progressive women. The Chicago Tribune reported that University Heights investors included female ac academics, quote, the craze indeed for a personally conducted hand-worked farm, except it wasn't their hands that were actually farming, um, has spread even to the School of Education, with the result that two or three of the women teachers have joined the movement. Nichols' plan also addressed the professor's uneasy consciences about their own social privilege. Several of the most prominent University Heights residents, Lovett among them, were politically active in progressive politics or sympathetic to progressive causes. In his autobiography, Lovett cites political influences such as the Chicago muckrakers, particularly Upton Sinclair, urban reformers, Hull House founder Jane Addams, and pivotal events such as the Pullman strike of 1894. So as they were, they were conflicted folk, right? They wanted to make money, they wanted to be socially revered, um, but they also had these very progressive ideas about 
um, social justice and thought, how can we make money and still promote a more communal and giving lifestyle? I know, let's go to the Bitterroot <laughs> and raise apples. So the recent prominent example, so they had a little idea and they're like, oh, we're going to be like this guy. The Halcyon home colony only lasted a little while, but it also influenced the visions of this segment of the University Heights participants. The colony was a brief experiment in communal living that attracted luminaries like Upton Sinclair, Sinclair Lewis, John Dewey, and William James. Among other goals, the colonists hoped to free women from household drudgery by providing common childcare and meals and mitigate the class system by replacing household staff with communal labor supplemented by trained staff, of course. Or perhaps university undergrads, because they're always <laughs> looking for a job, rather than domestic servants. While the home colony was socially radical, like University Heights, it was also not an anti-capitalist undertaking. Although Sinclair considered himself a socialist, writes historian Lawrence Kaplan, he consciously directed his appeal to middle-class intellectuals and professionals who would be expected to pay a substantial fee for their services. Applicants were screened for the quality of their congeniality, which meant that African Americans were specifically excluded. And the colony was situated in a lovely former boarding school for wealthy boys in Inglewood, New Jersey. Then it burned down, and it was no longer after about six months. So economic, social, and political ambitions came together in the physical design of University Heights. In February 1909, an optimistic Moody and Dinsmore returned to Ch from Chicago accompanied by Frank Lloyd Wright. By then, he was well known in Chicago's artistic and social circles, including the University of Chicago. So we keep wanting these guys to think they're special. And if they get Frank Lloyd Wright, who was top dog in Chicago architecture, to design it, they get even more to follow. Nichols' first plan for the project showed a central clubhouse with a circular drive surrounded by cabins. Wright's design for the colony incorporated the basic features of Nichols' plan. Citing, the siting both accommodated and alleviated social differences. He arranged the houses in groups. Paths, the drive, and a reflecting pool encouraged communication while different elevations in vegetation created privacy. So kind of north is this way looking at this plan, and this is actually the drawing by Frank Lloyd Wright, his original concept for um, University Heights. So we've got single and um, duplex cabins down here, long reflecting pool, the large clubhouse runs north-south up here, and then different levels of um, uh, cost, of course, associated with the cabins. Um, of course, if you're farther east, you have a nicer view across the valley, right? And looking over at the Sapphire Mountains. But, you know, you could still live there in one of those little places up behind the clubhouse. Or, um, if you just bought into the orchard, um, there were guest rooms in the lodge that you could stay in as well. So, Wright's plan emphasized striking views of the Bitterroots to the west, the forest to the north, and the Sapphires to the east then a flourishing orchard on a slightly lower plane to the south. So the orchard is down over here, and it still exists. Pretty big. Not as huge as it was once, but it's still there and, and pretty big. The irrigation ditch, that tin cup ditch, you know, the way that they were going to make money off of 
that to pay for their big ditch enterprise, which was their real going concern. Um, it really just bounds the whole property. Of the 60 or so projected buildings, only 14 were built. 12 cabins, the central clubhouse, and a small manager's office. The Tree Line Central Drive uh, was incorporated, and it's still there. Um, but a long cascading reflecting pool running from the clubhouse, it was never built. Business was brisk from 1911 to 1916. How much time do I have? I'm good? Oh, good. Oh, I need to end it up. I'm sorry. Okay, we'll go. I, but this is, this is the good part. So here we are. They're from about 1911 to 1916. Um, in a mark of speculative confidence, Moody purchased several large tracts for himself under his wife's name. Um, again in 1908 and again in 1912 and once more in 1914. The buyers were a more eclectic group than the university men approach um, and that the promotional cl clippings would suggest. They also brought in um, a member of the Philadelphia banking family, the Frothinghams, the Edgertons from New York City, um, Norman Becker, a, a wine importer, W.C. Howard and his wife Marie of Denver. Now Howard was going to be an important guy because he managed the E.I. DuPont Company uh, and possibly brought in uh, Alexis and Eugene DuPont. The DuPonts um, were Har Lovett's Harvard classmates in the 1890s. And the DuPonts, of course, are going to save them right when it all starts to go south. University of Chicago members included Lovett, who was a professor of Russian languages, uh, Samuel Harper, Alonzo Stagg, who was the director of athletics and, of course, would follow our handsome athlete out here. Uh, Fred Nichols, who was his old football coach, came in. So Wright sketched three cabins. Oh, here's the plan a little bit looking down. Again, north is at the top of the screen, and you can get an idea of the layout of the, of the design and the topography. And then the orchards are down in here, kind of off the, off the plat right there. So Wright sketched three different cabins, all fairly inexpensive as appropriate for summer housing, um, but still graded in size and cost. The largest cabins had the best views in front of the clubhouse and facing the Sapphire Mountains. But Wright didn't supervise construction, so he designed these beautiful, beautiful buildings and came out and he did look at the site and that helped him with the design, but he didn't actually supervise the construction of the cabins. Um, and the actual structures were adapted from these original drawings by local craftsmen. As you can see from the floor plans drawn by architectural historian um, William, William Allen Storer, the cabins lacked kitchens as communal dining both encouraged a sense of community and eliminated the servant problem. Uh, domestic workers would be engaged by the colony and lodged in the central hall, replacing private servants in individual households. Um, so you wouldn't have to mess up your kitchen um, or actually do any cooking or really do anything for yourself at all. But you'd have this wonderful feeling of, I'm living in this communal land with all these intellectuals. We're going to go to dinner at the clubhouse in this beautiful Frank Lloyd Wright designed clubhouse. We're going to talk about philosophy and social injustice while our domestic workers clean our houses and provide us all of our food. But the apples really taste good. <laughs> By early 1910, construction was complete. An open, um, well, of course, Wright designed the lodge itself. Conceived as a center of the community, it was 213 feet long. It was two stories and offered commanding views of the Bitterroot Valley from a central lobby. 
The first floor included two communal dining rooms, and on either side, two, a two-story lounge at the center for gathering and discussing philosophy. <coughs> Three fireplaces, the kitchen, service area, and small offices. Each end had a port cochere um, with stairs that led up to a, an expansive, partially covered porch. It was really lovely. The dining room doors were designed to open outward onto the porches. And Wright designed built-in planters. He loved the built-in planters. They're all over his places. But in, they never were actually constructed. So you can see this, the port cochere, so you drive your carriage or your <coughs> automobile up through here and you go right into the porch and all of these beautiful glass doors would open out and you could go into the dining room or you can go into the lounge. Um, there's a mezzanine here and then upstairs were the quarters. <coughs> Here's the second story. And you can see the tiny guest rooms up here. So if you weren't fancy or superior or notable enough to buy your own cabin, they would stick you in here. And then the servants were above the kitchen in the back. But soon the bloom was off the fruit. Doing well by doing good turned out to be not quite as easy as the investors had hoped. Uh, when he returned in 1916, wrote Lovett, the bloom was off the fruit. Insects attacked the orchards. The weather was too chilly for a reviable crop. Northeastern farmers also began growing uh, Macintosh <coughs> apples, so they had a stiff competition. Freight rates went up, and Lovell, Lovell wrote, each season was a deficit. Problems, however, were apparent in other parts of the valley much earlier. Under optimal conditions, the big ditch, which is the other ditch that they built, um, could barely deliver enough water that, as promised. Conditions were rarely optimal. Runoff was light and water levels were low in Lake Como, and there just wasn't enough water to go around. Furthermore, its infrastructure required constant upkeep. It was very, very expensive. There were multiple lawsuits against Nichols and Moody's and their companies, including for land fraud. In 1914, 100 farmers sued their company, their irrigation company, claiming it was bankrupt and the directors were diverting fees intended for maintenance to meet operating costs of their other enterprises, including University Heights. Um, the Chicago Tribune claimed that with liabilities of $5 million, um, it was the biggest bankruptcy in Montana history. Recession hit the valley the same year in 1917. The Anaconda Copper Mining Company permanently shut its lumber mill, moving operations out to Bonner. Sunny optimism quickly turned to disillusionment and anger. Arsonists attempt to sabotage the big ditch. And according to the Corvallis Agricultural Experiment Station, three quarters of the valley's one million apple trees were abandoned by 1920. Also in 1920, local landowners formed a municipal irrigation district and took control of the ditch itself. How am I doing? Am I over time? I'm way over time. I just keep talking. I'm sorry. Um, so quickly, the deterioration and decline move on. Um, the professors came and went. They lost all their money. Um, and by the 1920s, uh, this Macintosh, Morelli Macintosh Company, had kind of started to buy in, and they leveled just about everything. They used the lovely, lovely um, lodge uh, to house their agricultural workers. Um, they built uh, orchards. They planted more and more trees all the way around so that the lovely landscaping kind of disappeared, except for the tree-lined drive. 
Um, they kept going to about, so this is at the height of their thing. You can see all, it's just all apple trees. And several of the 12 cabins are already gone. Um, but the lodge is still there. They have this big hunking garage going on here. And if you look there, that cabin is the only cabin that is still standing at University Heights. And there it is. Um, the lodge itself was torn down by the 1950s. It had been used as a fruit storage warehouse for a long time. By the time the people from the 50s, who bought it in the late 40s, early 50s, purchased the place, um, they didn't even know it was designed by a famous architect. And so they were trading buildings to, to a guy to come and, and help them build a different kind of barn. Um, and they just kind of let them all go. Um, so this is the only one that's standing. That's the original design. It was recited re in the 1980s. But you can still go there. And the manager's cabin is the other Frank Lloyd Wright design building that's still there. We still have the ditch, and we still have the orchards, and we still have that tree line drive. I'll be quiet now. But isn't it pretty? Yeah. <laughs>